with our <clears throat> Dhamma talk uh, topic this evening. We'll be exploring one uh, particular aspect of the third domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, citta nupasana. And we'll be exploring this in relationship to how unwholesome or afflictive emotions manifest as as an aspect of dukkha. We'll also be looking at the process of the transformation and the relinquishment of these afflictive states of mind. And beginning with uh, a quote that I don't know who it's from, actually. (laughs) Pleasure, like pain, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many uh, of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor at this meeting, said that often his response uh, to this question, which he said he's asked fairly often, is that Buddhism Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions. And, he said, all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization or liberation. And he said, It's the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, of Nibbana, being complete purity of the mind, of the heart, has been described as the mind and the heart of an Arhant. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, There was a sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in really, truly believing that this is possible. In the many, many times that I've practiced with Saidao Upandita and with Pawak Saidao, both of these very venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha often uh, speaks of this particular aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom in the same way. As our confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to get some sense, some taste that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of 
as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and mental effort in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know, we come to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find that, at least to some degree, we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and what's harmful to others. We begin to find that the wholesome states of mind and heart are more and more our experience, that they're more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices begins to take deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to our very deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If, I were, if it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom and metta and compassion of the Buddha, the heart-mind of a Buddha only sees suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them or rather than condemning them. And the heart, the mind of a Buddha, in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering, rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a great inspiration, inspiring us to feelings of self-confidence within ourselves, 
it can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there certainly have been uh, times when I've experienced various difficulties, various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and the practice. And when I've been able to be really very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings through my practice. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that we can be successful. This is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice interview with the Venerable Pawak Sayadaw, I went in and said to him, this is too hard. And the Sayadaw looked at me with a great kindness in his eyes and um, a very light laughter. And he simply said to me, no, it isn't. (laughs) And it's true. (laughs) The suttas, the direct teachings uh, of the Buddha, are filled, actually filled, with this approach to the practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in our practice in this light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha was not excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, Judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains. It's a long list. From our present life's experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experience. 
Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. And in our practice, we open to whatever is there, whatever's present, whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. When they appear. And it's important, really important to remember the when they appear. It's not about dredging up. It's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. Now maybe there are some people who seem to be able to find a really true happiness, a true ease of being, without ever letting out the skeletons. And that's great for them. But actually, I have never in my whole life ever met anyone like this. Most of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or what we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and maybe buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around often unconsciously and unwittingly maybe for a very long time. In relationship to this, I'd like to share some words from Stephen Mitchell's version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it, as it has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepily walks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, and compassion each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind, a focused heart, the heart of kindness, rooted in the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience. 
all of this enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. Really, this is such an amazing process that we're involved with. Learning to open to our experience from the very deepest center of our being. Learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached. To just see what is right here, right now. And begin to realize that it really doesn't have to control us. We notice. We note this is how it is in this present moment the breath, the body, feelings, the various conditions, the moods of the mind are like this in this moment with concentration and mindfulness grounded in in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence. Our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or to fix it, or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with the seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing kind of attitude. We begin to realize that, in fact, none of these reactive habit patterns serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness. It's then that the door to clear seeing or seeing through is opened. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our room with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the, old, uh, without the old habit of giving the past, be it 20 or 30 years ago or just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this, rain saddens what is wrapped up, but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed. 
lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. The monk uh, Bhante Gunaratana in his book Mindfulness in Plain English says this, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or, or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great. <laughs> More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in and investigate. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be accepted be clearly seen and investigated. And, as you all know, this takes time. We really can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. And the rest takes care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be a vicious circle. And so through this process of opening to and relinquishing relinquishing our conditioned habitual patterns of suffering, relinquishing our addictions of mind. We approach it with kindness and a deep patience to and with ourself. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a bit of a look Uh, now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. 
Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires and attachments, etc. And yet we so often believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though they're quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and we project onto the possible future, solidifying both in our mind. And yet, life just simply keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. In Taos, New Mexico, uh, where I live, during the midsummer and early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in the big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing often even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right, and then of course one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And It all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow. Coming together, the coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so very obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with our more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us, can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. 
thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything that we cling to, from material objects to the various permutations of states of hope and fear, will cause us some degree of suffering. And the other side of this thin coin, of course, anything that we push away, avoid, resist, will cause us some degree of suffering. Our practice is about present moment awareness. Really, truly being in the present. This present moment, this present moment, this present moment. Just as it is right now, right now, right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. The truth is that this moment, however it is, changes, disappears, dissolves in this moment. And on and on it goes, all of which we can see if we take a close look. Liberation isn't based in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see, something that we ignore. In English, we have a very well-known saying, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the uh, Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing. Because of the lack of penetration or concealment of the truth, the lack or concealment of the nature of things, With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or what we could call true understanding. And it's experienced as the mental blindness or the mental darkness of delusion caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. And this is really the root of all that's unwholesome. 
But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Not our true nature. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So going on now with exploring a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of of doubt or anxiety or worry and resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to. Or maybe feeling like I can't be with or I'm not sure I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience or some old experience or strong emotional state or some pain in the body. And at times maybe even this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe we sometimes feel frozen or caught or just simply unable to open and receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. From this perspective, Fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming. The critical mind, if we take it up, if we really believe it. It's his fault, it's her fault, it's because she, it's because they, etc. And this fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, maybe feelings of unworthiness, not feeling good enough, or just not being enough, not doing it right, not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is based in fear. And some of you may remember last week the reflection that I offered uh, about perfection, some words from Chang Tzu, the Taoist master Chang Tzu. I'll repeat it. The mind of a perfect woman or a perfect man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or the perfect man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, of doubt, of blaming and criticism inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves 
from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that we're often afraid of the fear, afraid to look really directly at it, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found that it might not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came into an interview and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me, fear is just fear. Well, when I first heard this from him, my inward response, I didn't say this out loud, was, well, that's easy for you to say. Obviously, there was um, quite a taste of resistance and irritation in this thought. But eventually, I began to see that fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice of mindfulness and concentration based in kindness towards ourselves we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, come close to it, look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. (laughs) As we get stronger, as our heart and mind get stronger and our concentration and mindfulness muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear. Accept that it is. And know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine. It's not me. It's not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens, yes. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something that belongs to me. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. And it may be a moment of a very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing it clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not me, not mine, not something solid or permanent. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We learn, one of the things we learn with our practice is we learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it clearly, to see through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. This past year, I 
read a very interesting article in National Geographic magazine about uh, a woman mountain climber, 40-year-old mountain climber named Garland, who was the first woman to ever reach the um, peak or the top of the, in the Himalaya of K2 without oxygen, climbing without oxygen. And in this article, there were uh, two paragraphs, one uh, both about fear. Her husband, who was, al- who was also a mountain climber, um, his relationship to fear, and another paragraph about her relationship to fear. And I'd like to uh, share these with you. He, Ralph, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. She, Garland, met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. When Garland reached the top of K2, she placed a Buddha on the top of that extremely high mountain. Garland happens to be a practicing Buddhist. And a poem by Wendell Berry in relationship to this. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been brought up, how most of us have been trained, how we've been conditioned, how we've been patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. As we know, they just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities. Keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out and, or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is really like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is this practice about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. 
the strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and when we're swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very, very close to our immediate experience. It's an intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience, or without desiring it to be different. In specifically practicing samatha or concentration or metta, these same principles apply though investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be in vipassana practice. Unless an unwholesome state really blows up into becoming a very becoming very pervasive and sticky. So taking a look now at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. So from this perspective, it can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was primarily fueled by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger and, in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt uh, strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and feel the sharp needles the sharp sting of her anger, and they'd move away. She was a very lonely person, and yet so identified in her mind as an angry person, and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose the fuel for her life, if she let go of her anger. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, it's constricted. The quality of our awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective pretty much vanish. One often feels quite restless and driven. Nothing's satisfying. Sleep is often difficult. The body's quite tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large. And so does the sense of the other. 
I think one of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's kind of as though a line has been drawn or set up that is not to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, and hate develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends upon the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many different components, thoughts and stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing, as soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or doubt or greed or clinging, expectation, disappointment, as soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out these stories, it's very helpful to let them go. Let them drop away. Give them what I call no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer to the angry mind. So let the stories go. And then bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body. Feeling the emotion directly in itself, without the story. So what are you feeling? Maybe heat or tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, some type or degree of vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning at this point, notice what your relationship to these sensations is. Is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance 
of the sensations in your body. Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body with walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside, the expanse of the fields, the trees, in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Really take an interest. Notice the birds, the chipmunks, the insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath, specifically if you're practicing concentration. In those moments of a connected, present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises in a completely connected present moment attention is really amazing. Beyond compare. In a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Remember the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. And again from Nisargadatta Maharaj, who, as some of you know, often taught in dialogue with his students. So the student asked him a question. What is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, don't cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, it doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and the wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, such as maybe power or pleasure or status or prestige or some kind of recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated, mindful attention based in the heart of kindness, 
therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear and anger and greed, attachment and sadness. So now I'd like to spend just uh, a little bit of time exploring the wanting mind, states of strong desire, greed and clinging and attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. When our heart, when our mind is clouded, we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment. We're blinded by desire. And a very blatant and current example of this, with greed being the root of the current worldwide economic crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project project onto the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need and how we think things we what we think we need in order to really be contented, to really be at ease in our life. The thought that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. For instance, it's in part what got you here to the forest refuge, to be in retreat. So in light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer, a personal practice, I was told, of Mother Teresa. And I'll read it just as it was uh, sent to me. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I don't think she forgot anything. (laughs) An honest saint. Uh, Shortly after I received this, I got a phone call from a friend and was quite excited about getting it. And I said, I want to read this to you. And I read it over the phone. And his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) True. We do have a lot to do, but I really find it quite an inspiring um, practice or prayer. 
many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and expend an incredible amount of energy and time trying to hold on to or get something back. Or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or to keep someone from changing. Maybe even here in this retreat. Maybe the particular wonderful sitting that you had the other day. Or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice from some other retreat, maybe years ago. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? So, a simple and really quite mundane personal example. Some years ago I was in a retreat center uh, in New Mexico that has some of the most beautiful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very pleasant, very present and very pleasant. And then I got caught. I had to go do something else. But all I wanted to do was stay there and continue experiencing this sweet smell. So with the next moment of clinging and not being able to go on, to let go and go on, the pleasantness of that experience of the previous moment was completely gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body and a kind of burning in the heart. I got up and I walked away to do what I had to do, but there was still a clinging to this sweet smell, even though it was no longer in my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it, wanting it back, planning when I could go back to that garden and imagining how wonderful it would be later on when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens very quickly. There's a story that the Dalai Lama tells about himself, uh, about a time when he was taken shopping, window shopping actually, in some big city uh, to an area where there were lots and lots of small shops that sold all kinds of small mechanical parts and systems. And his friend took him there because he knew that the Dalai Lama was particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. And the Dalai Lama said that when he looked into these shop windows, it was first with a very open and uh, curiosity and an open interest. 
And then he said, all of a sudden, he realized he wanted everything. <laughs> he said he wanted all of it, even though he said, I didn't even know what any of it was for. <laughs> to sustain and to deepen in and with our practice, to see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart, essential qualities of mind that are required of us are honesty and humility, self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest disciples and who was quite a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is, without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. As we begin to know and to see, maybe see and know first, see first, know them, greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. And I think for many people there's often some confusion, delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this Attachment feels good. And I think it's even often or sometimes confused with love until we really begin to see it and know it clearly. What is ease, happiness, really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire. And even more important, a moment of release from the stress of attachment, a moment of release from the stress of clinging, liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning, eye consciousness is burning, the ear is burning, ear consciousness is burning. And he went on like this through all of the six sense doors. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a recipe uh, written by a man named Fred Moramarco. And at the risk of um, giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe cook up occasionally, I'd like to um, share this one with you. 
the ingredients are one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, (laughs) a quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with all of this ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. (laughs) In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add add it to what is and inability to what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let it stand until tears form. Garnished with minced envy and serve immediately. And another way of saying this from the Chinese sage Nan Xin. By not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe, the recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, and investigation rooted in kindness that meets the experiences of the moment and sees them clearly just as they are. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away and overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. We see their nature, just like we see through the hues of a rainbow. One way, and maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from the Mahayana, the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotuses, and white lotuses do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. 
Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is, is really an acknowledgement that as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult emotions, many strong and difficult emotional energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to our self or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions is what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence. And for many people, this is a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these so-called poisons being transformed through our practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them. He used uh, often quite descriptive language. Afflictive emotions transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to relinquish, to let go of what causes the burning. And in the letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness the place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and in our mind, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing taken away, nothing needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. And I'd like to close the talk with a poem called Hokusai Says. As some of you uh, probably know, Hokusai was a a very famous, or is a very famous Japanese uh, painter. He's no longer alive. And his most famous painting is of a huge wave, with the wave coming over, which looks like fingers. And underneath is a tiny little boat with uh, some people in it. And this is the... Poem, Hokusai Says, by Roger Keyes. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. 
He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.